0: Matt
1: and I'm Dr. Mijan Salitha-Bias, and today on K12 Art Chat, the podcast, we're diving into two episodes of our special series of the Connected Arts Networks, developed in partnership between the National Art Education Association, the Educational Theater Association, and the National Association for Music Education, the National Dance Education Organization, and New York City Department of Education's Office of Arts and funded by a grant from the US Department of Education's Assistance for Arts Education Program. During this set of episodes, our Connected Arts Network's members focus on accessibility and inclusion in the arts classroom.
0: I am super honored and excited that you are co-hosting uh, this podcast and that you're sitting here with me. And those people that may not know who you are, you are Dr. Majan silly tobias And don't worry, Laura's not gone. She is She is still part of the podcast and um, will be. But Majan, I want everybody to, I want you to kind of just Clue some people in exactly a little bit about who you are.
1: Thank you, Matt. I'm always excited and happy to be here as well. I'm missing Laura. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I can just introduce myself quickly by saying the larger umbrella is I'm a cultural worker, culturally responsive educator, And in two days time, I'm also a Fulbright specialist awardee doing curriculum design for the Universidad de las Artes in Guayaquil, Ecuador for the next couple of months. Um, Matt, could you introduce (laughs) us to our guest on the podcast?
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm really excited because I've had a chance to kind of talk with these people already, Um, kind of getting to know them, but uh, to enter introduce you all to our two guests for today. We have Rebecca Vicentainer, who is a dance educator from North Plainfield, New Jersey, and Sean Turner, a high school teacher at New York City Department of Education, along with adjunct assistant professor of Hunter College. Um, So we thank you both for being here. And we want to start with Becky, just to kind of tell us a little bit and then we'll move to Sean to tell us a little bit about your origin story and kind of how you came about to be where you are.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Um, so I am originally from Pennsylvania, um, small town called McCongee and, um, got into dance when I was four years old. My mom stuck me in a ballet class and I never left. Um, but in Pennsylvania, studio dance was pretty much the only option in our area. So private um, school and outside of um, you know, your, your uh, normal school day. Um, we did not have dance in our public schools as a option for um, extracurricular or um, elective based study. So when I was interested in studying dance for college, um, Understandably, my parents also wanted me to have either another major or a backup plan, as you will, (laughs) just in case. Um, So I applied to several different schools. I ended up at Mason Grove School of the Arts at Rutgers University. Um, And a big draw there was that they had a five-year program, which was very new um, and the first in the country that they offered a BFA in dance and um, an additional year to get your master's in dance education with a certificate, then for PK uh, preschool all the way through twelfth grade. Um, I really like this idea of coming out of school with a master's in five years. Didn't really know what this meant, but I pursued it. Um, very happy with my choice. Uh, so. In, the, in that program, that's when I was introduced to dance in public schools and this in, whole other realm of uh, dance education. I was introduced to the National Core Arts Standards and just this idea that um, dance and the other art forms could be used as a way to study society's culture's time periods. Um, the four cornerstones, um, cornerstones of performing, connecting, responding, and creating just really made sense to me um, and I loved it. So after graduation, I you know applied, I ended up accepting a position at North Plainfield High School. I've been there ever since, so I'm in my eighth year. Um, we've now expanded into the eighth grade. So I teach grades eight through 12, um, pushing and advocating to expand the program even more. Um, But outside of that, I um, teach at a private dance studio as well. I've also been a part-time lecturer for Rutgers University for that um, master's in dance education program. And I still perform professionally with a dance company called Rock Dance Collective um, based out of New Jersey. So just kind of have my foot in all the different realms of dance and dance education and loving all of it.
0: That's awesome, Becky. Um, so Sean, how about you?
3: Well, yeah, that's very, very impressed by Becky. Uh, uh, my route is, um, maybe the inverse I would say. I don't mean that in a negative way, but, um, Uh, Going to college, I I was one of those students that struggled a lot with uh, who they were, Um, and I grew up in Southern California, so I'm definitely the uh, definition of a 10-year junior college student, (laughs) where I actually worked uh, in theater, technical theater, doing Otis Salid, uh, Cliff Freeland, uh, a lot of uh, amazing uh, dance, even though I'm a theater guy. uh, doing lighting for dance and growing up. And then also with um, the area I grew up in was a hotbed for uh, Cesar Chavez's uh, collective and even Tomas Rivera, the father of Chicano literature, was up at UC Riverside. It's a very interesting eclectic now that I look back at it. (laughs) But uh, when I was growing up, I was lost. So I was one of those lost uh, people going through. So my journey to finding out where I was and when I came back, to say I wanted to do something in theater was a traditional, uh, you know, go through, be MFA route, try to teach at a community college, whatever the gods or whatever said, no, that's not gonna happen um, for a lot of different reasons. And then one day, uh, all my friends, when I went to grad school, moved to New York City. So I said, oh, let me, they wanted me to go out there. And I called New York City and I ended up working at a jail juvenile facility and um, now and it became another problem. Part of where I got into certification for special ed um, but dealing with that kind of uh, problem of what you do inside those facilities versus on the outside of those facilities and then uh, that led my route to um, getting um, so I have a master's in theater and special ed but I ended up getting a PhD and the whole PhD is about exploring the possibilities for those uh, youth so there's a lot of narratives in that um and I'm and that will get into the other aspects so I'm very open I'm, it's not my narrative that's important I just want to express that um my journey, I'm very privileged to be part of this journey because I feel like I'm somehow my body is a vessel that might allow other people to be a bridge to other things so that's what I think so yeah, so we're all part, you have to kind of seize what you are and then deal with that, your own ambitions, and then deal with like what's put in front of you in your own communities or problems of practice. And so that's where I am now. I Sorry, am, I get through.
1: No, don't apologize. <laughs> you are actually going right into the next question that I have. I'm curious, Becky and Sean, um, you know, Both of you have these origin stories that have quite a bit of depth layered in with passion. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me, tell us why you are so fiercely committed about the topic of accessibility and inclusion. Sean, if you're okay starting off first, I feel like you began that (laughs) So maybe there's oh, yeah. a bit more that you can say, like, why do you double down in terms of your commitment? Because it's one thing. I mean, I just want to
2: sort yeah, of backtrack.
1: So, it's one thing to tell us these flashpoints. Yeah. And and it's another thing to be like, why are you though still choosing to be committed well, to accessibility? Yeah. And so
3: Yeah, I would say if you were to take me on a traditional path, I would have ne- I was never accepted. I was never accepted into that theater community that privilege I remember I was sitting at NYU at an applied theater thing and uh, and and there was uh, I forget what she, who she was she she was in um she played Porsche's mom in a fish uh, called Wanda and she just won a tony for uh, directing and she was sitting there going well it'd be criminal to tell somebody that doesn't have talent that they couldn't be in this business when they couldn't, because they were arguing over space, and that's me. I was never uh, who who would give me space. Like I'm, I'm an outcast. I'm not this talented person uh, in that way. My talent is that I can go on by th- both sides of the realms. I I can be part of one community and be part of another community, and that's. And even if I'm just a fly on the wall, I have to make those bridges. So that's my calling. That's what I try to do. And that's my passion um, because there's just, there's completely different worlds. I would just say that. Um, And there's different struggles that people go through, but uh, I'm very passionate about critical art spaces and giving those to people that you know nece- not necessarily part of the canyon are going to be whatever and um and i'm very proud of that that i've been part, i've been privileged to be part of other people's being able to use space to make something that they want to in their life and that's that's uh powerful i would just say for me
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Becky. I'm wondering the same thing. Curious about the same thing for you. Why are you fiercely committed to this topic of accessibility and inclusion, especially from the world of dance?
2: Yeah, um, this is such a loaded question because there's just so many ways. um, I feel like I could talk for hours about it. So I'm going to try and be concise and pare it down clearly. Um, But I think you can ask anyone. It feels great to be included, and it feels really terrible to be excluded. Um, And, you know, I've had my own journey with dance and performing and the arts and education and all of it, um, but throughout everything, in some capacity, dance was always a safe space and a really healing place for me and i everyone deserves that whatever it is for them but my platform right now is my studio and is my my classroom and like if i can just create that space for students to come and feel safe to explore and question and um, express themselves and be their authentic self then i am doing my job even if we never move because dance is so much more than the physical component. Um, And so that the way that manifests looks different every single day. Um, You know, I mostly work with teenagers and sometimes I work with little kids in the studio. I teach little kids too. little kids have this. um, They're excited about like everything excites them. They're curious about everything. They ask why all the time. And then as we get older and like in high school and in adults, we stop asking those questions, we stop quite like being curious and like that excitement gets distinguished for many people. Um, And at 14 years old like that I just don't think that that should be the case, we should not be shutting doors for students, we should be opening them and not telling them that they can't do something so, especially in dance, I think there's a lot of stereotypes that still exist in terms of what it you need to look like to be a dancer. Um, and I hear it a lot like, well, I, this student can't take dance because they don't look like a dancer, or boys don't dance, or I'm not good at dance, so I can't take your class. Um, and so I always respond the same, which is, do you have a body? And everyone kind of gives me this look and yes, okay, then you can dance. If you have your body, this is our instrument, you can dance. and. It's gonna look different every day and it might not even be moving. Um, Dance is inherently um, accessible and inclusive. And I think that's true of all art forms. We can always modify up or down. Um, I take the stance that my choreography needs to fit my students. My students don't need to fit my choreography. So I choreograph for who's in my class and I take ideas for them. I work with a lot of students with learning disabilities, and um, I see such a different side to to them than many of their uh, classroom teachers. I am still asking them to critically think. I am still asking them to research. I am still asking them to think logically and um, rationally. However, we express it differently. And often it is in a way that um, they, it just clicks and it gives them a different form of expression and a way to be successful, um, that is still supporting them in their other classes. So, um, it's just a really wonderful environment to be a part of. And I really look forward to going to work every day and, and being part of that, um, that environment and, and being part of that space and building that space with my students. Um, And I think, like, the last idea I have around this is improvisation is a big part of dance. And in my class, the way we define improvisation is freedom within boundaries. So we talk a lot um, about changing our mindset to see these moments of adversity, whether it is a physical disability, someone gets injured, or a learning disability, or a whatever whatever it might be it's not a it's an opportunity it's another boundary and we find freedom within that is an opportunity to build creativity find a new um a new way a new movement a new way to express a new avenue to enter whatever the task is um so we really kind of build that in for like the creative component and and try and build in curiosity and try and like reignite that flame of questioning and just excitement for for everything for living for experiencing. Yeah. And that's for everyone.
0: That's that's for everyone. And I love the fact that, um, you know, through these podcasts, we um have these conversations and they segue so well like right into the next questions they always they always do that it's it's like those questions were crafted that way or something i don't know but um you know thank you both for sharing that because you can sense just the overall passion and fire and commitment that you all bring to your classrooms and the students that you must impact um it's got to be massive and thank you for that. Um, you know, Becky, you started to kind of hit on kind of some examples um some ways that you kind of ensure that that accessibility and inclusion in your classroom. Um, I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear like more of like a specific way that maybe they could use these in their in their practice in their classrooms just, Ideas, and we would, you know, if you're if you're willing, we'd like to start with with you, Becky, just to kind of give some some examples, and then we'll go to Sean about how to really enforce that or ensure that um, that sense of accessibility and that sense of belonging.
2: Absolutely. Um, so it starts with community building right away from the first day. Um, getting to know the students and creating the environment so students get to know one another we do this um, you know maybe through various questionnaires exit slips do nows for more of the surface level questions um what do you like i'll ask them for song choices and make a class playlist for the first few months of school or and throughout the year um I start the year off asking them what they want to learn or what they hope the year will look like. Um, Maybe they're interested in learning a specific style or working with an artist and I do my best to um, adapt the curriculum. Dance is great because we can we're learning technique, but technique can be any style of dance. So I'll adjust to fit the desires of my class as best I can. Um, We create community guidelines as a class. Um so, for example, um, I have a class this year who really wants more choreographic opportunities. Um, so, like, together we are setting the agreement that I will give them some sort of creative task once a week, even if it's just a five-minute exploration to build in that creative practice. So, it's something they've asked for. I'm committing to it, and they're committing to doing it because they recognize that it's hard sometimes to get started in those um, choreographic tasks. Um, So that's an example. Throughout the year, um, one of my big projects that has been really successful is our themed dance concert. So I talk to my advanced classes of like, what are you interested in? And we will spend a day just talking about what they're interested in and kind of pare it down to a focus. Um, And then that focus becomes a research project that the entire department um, goes through. So for example, one year, this school read, um, the entire school read the same book for a summer reading. Um, So we used that summer reading book and turned it into a dance performance. Another year we had a group that was really interested in school Segregation and so we had a dance concert about the integration of little rock Um, another year students were interested in um, climate change and we had a show that was. That researched that so they are going through um, you know going to the library, they write their questions they gather information they see if the sources are valid or not. Um, And then, instead of writing a paper we make some dances and how do we communicate ideas through dance, but it is largely student generated. The topics come from the students, the questions come from the students um, and it's really meaningful work that they all engage in. And then their reflection papers at the end typically say nothing about dance. (laughs) They'll talk about the community building. They talk about the content we learned. And then at the end, I'll get these like, oh, and I got better at my dance skills too. And I'm like, cool. Great. Uh, which they are. They are inherently getting better at their technique and improving on their physical movement skills as well. But what they remember is the material, the content they learned, um, the the research that was done, and the uh, connections that were formed, the relationships that were formed. Um, so it all just comes together. That
0: um sounds pretty awesome. I think I would love to be to just sit in on that i think that would be really fun
2: and you know i invite my administration to sit in because um they'll come and they'll ask questions about like what's the show i don't know what are the songs i don't know i was like i just don't know i i know the date and we'll have a show but at this point i really have nothing nothing else to offer because it's yet to be made yeah (laughs) and it's gonna come from them so i don't i don't know um but it's a really fun process and it's it just it um it's really deep, authentic learning across the board and it's, everyone can engage in it. There's a way to get every student engaged.
0: Thank you. Um, Sean, how about you? What are, what are some things that you do to really truly ensure that accessibility and that feeling of inclusion?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so just listening to um, Becky's responses, I think there is a context um, when we talk about the word inclusion, what that means, inclusion Mm -hmm. of what. Most of my context, uh, my personal context, is I've been placed in environments where students would rather eat coal than be in a theater class. Mm -hmm. This is the last place in the world that they want to be in. For me, you know, as a male, I identify as a male, I understand that. It's theater is encompassed dance and anything with physical or voice creates vulnerability, any type of change. Adolescent boys do not. I'm talking very generally here. It's it's getting out of your comfort zone is extreme vulnerability. Uh, So, you know, I'm. I get in an environment where I'm going to, you know, I work with the type of kids that are going to say, F you, I'm not doing this. I don't want to be part of this. Very resistant. So what I found, so I'm going to put that word into the resistance category, right? So I don't want to be here. Um, That's just a mask for other things. Um, So, you know, it kind of segues to what Becky was saying. So how do we empower students to be part of whatever we're going to do? So. Um, like Becky, uh, so this is a segue here, right? So a teacher has, an, they can control three things. They can control their pedagogy. They can control the curriculum. They can control student engagement. You change one of those, it'll affect the other ones. So, you know, I, I have power over the curriculum. So just like what Becky was saying, that's the first thing I'm going to look at. I, I tend to look at it as sense of a, a, a multimodality, a multi-modality and uh, define, that's my first aspect. So I come in with the mindset that every person in the class has a talent of some sort that they can bring part of this conversation. That's my mindset. So one, kids come in with great talents and I don't uh, hold the uh, knowledge of that. They're coming in with great talents. Um, Becky had said, get to know students. I think that's important. There's different ways to get to know students. Community building is one way, but there's other things just like listening to students, like like spending time with students because they do have a lot of values. And then designing tasks where everybody is valued, whatever they're bringing into that, their life worlds are um, important. And that's a concept that's really hard sometimes because if you're a teacher, you might not know the life worlds of your students and so that takes, a, so you have to design tasks that allow for listening, laughter, listen, you know, building into that. And then you have to create tasks that allow, in theater, you know, uh, a lot of co-work or designing that can be successful, even if it's out of their comfort zone, but they can add to something. So what are the entry points, right? And then finally, what is produced? Right? Ultimately if you wanna buy, you get to me, to get kids to buy in, you still have to produce a product of some sort that's just like killer. Um, But if you can get the kids to buy into that product and they feel like they have some ownership over that, which I think was was what Becky was also saying, doesn't matter if you're in a structured department program or you're just working with kids that, why am I taking this class? It's still, the principles are the same. I think that's a one important. And then two, I think, um, you know, you have to kind of do with kids. Uh, you have to explore with kids. You have to find value in what they bring into the production aspect. So ultimately, uh, you know, producers versus consumers and what we view with that. Uh, and then I think then the other aspect is, you um, you can get into a lot of if you give it those big ideas it's a lot easier than even going to the iep and saying how this student learns because they're all talking about different modalities so then you're able to say and share with the general ed teachers like oh the student really works well when they're able to work visually in this concept right or they're able to do that so i really believe that the arts are A different window to special ed that we never looked at because in the arts you see more openness to modalities and understanding the true nature a window so to speak to the kids really talents and we can get a deeper look into how they want to approach learning um and you know because we as the arts have more flexibility and control over our curriculum i would just say generally i i know that if you're in a Elite program you might not have control of your curriculum as much because you're trying to get juries or different things with that. But I would just say what Becky and I were talking about is, you know, you can control the curriculum and then gauge on student engagement and then adjust your curriculum on student engagement. And that's that's a easy entry point for accessibility.
1: Sean and Becky, I'm listening to both of you and I'm hearing great expertise. I'm wondering what kind of professional development, research, or programs that you've participated in to grow your expertise in accessibility and inclusion. And if you'd be willing to share some specific resources, certification programs, that would be wonderful. Sean, I'm going to throw this question to you first, and then Becky.
3: Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I put on my reference David Connor and uh, Valet, um, not because they're just at Hunter, and David actually brought me into Hunter. Um, but Valet is uh, very um, versed in disability studies and theater and that performance aspect of in in the in the genre of theater, what that meant in terms of disability studies in an intersection, which is a whole different thing, just in the art form itself. And then when, and you have to understand that in our, in the field, I know I'm not talking about arts field, I'm talking about special ed. There is a major tension or division between deficit mindset versus, this kind of disrupting this idea of normalcy or what ability actually means, our ableness. So we need to kind of get out of that and look at accessibility in different aspects. And we see a lot of that um, as we move forward in the area of special ed. So like I said before, not very many people have accepted me into theater. God bless Kathy Irvin and Black Theater Network because I was always accepted there. I didn't know that we were on the peripheral until I got to a mainstream grad school. And they said, oh, my theater is on the peripheral. I thought, oh, that's just theater. I was accepted. That was part of the community. Um, So that's one place that I've always felt um, welcome. Um, And then the other place was with the uh, Arthur Lesak and um, his view of Lesak Kinesensics, which is uh, connected to arts endorsed uh, Dorothy Humphrey um, they worked together at the uh, pins and needles theater back in the 30s but um, the view of the body so for dance people LeBon, if you think about Le bon and Lesak, they're very interconnected so a lot of people are there and um, we're part of ISMETA and the semantic uh, approach of that so that research we've done um, two books that have looked at the uh, different people around the globe that have used our approach to body voice uh, from a kinesensic approach to dealing with some of these aspects of inclusivity. We as an organization are kind of challenged with a lot of these issues about diversity, particularly when you're dealing with countries and different currencies and stuff. Uh, So there's a lot of challenges about that and how people perceive uh, different aspects of that. So those those are two aspects of uh, my work that I'm doing, and of course I'm still part of this group, which um, am part of the grant, and I've been an active part of that, and I'm very happy to be in New York and have that opportunity to support leaders and what they're doing, and the work of formative assessments, and we in New York are working a lot with Goldie Muhammad's framework the ill framework and going deeper into that. Um, so those are the three areas that I'm very, I'm very, I, it just fuels me to have that. Um, again, I use the word privilege because I just having access to those conversations kind of enlightens me because that fuels me and I get to be a part of it. And hopefully I can share that with other people.
1: Thank you, uh, I'm curious, Becky, Same exact question, Um, if you can share specific resources, certification programs, uh, the bigger question is, what kind of professional development research or programs have you participated in to grow your expertise in accessibility and inclusion?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and Sean, thank you. I was taking notes down because there are a lot of things that you said that I want to go check out after. Um, so thank you for that. Um, we, for part, as part of the CAN grant, we actually just had a webinar with an organization called People Like Us, um, and they presented several um, strategies for inclusion, specifically with talking about arts classrooms um, that I think was very accessible for educators getting started. Um, And the conversation was largely around um, maybe more physical or learning disabilities. However, again, I'm coming from a working with a population that is largely um, multi-language learners or formerly ESL learners. Um, And I was like, these are great activities that would help students that have a language barrier too, start to feel more confident to integrate and give an access entry point. Um, so I would encourage educators to um, look at them. People, again, the organization's called People Like Us. I thought it was, um, their framework is presented in a very user-friendly way. For myself, I've gone to Uh, several workshops through the National Dance Educators Organization at our annual conference every year. Um, But after those workshops, the work really comes from self-reflection and thinking about like, how am I teaching my students? Am I meeting their needs? What implicit biases do I hold? Because if we don't acknowledge those points, um, it's we're, we're setting a roadblock for ourselves. Um, so I know that Harvard University has these implicit biases tests in various different categories. Um, I've gone through several on my own just to see um, if I self assess myself where I am appropriately when given specific questions. Um, So that resource has been eye-opening for myself to kind of identify areas that I might need to go back and look at again and think about like, what biases do I hold? How does this impact my classroom? Or how does this manifest in my classroom? How does that impact my students? And now how do I go back and either shift my mindset, shift my pedagogy, um, refine my curriculum, To be more inclusive, more accessible, um, et cetera.
0: Um, Yeah, I just, I'm in awe just sitting here listening to both of you and your responses. And, you know, as Becky was saying earlier, just taking notes and just writing these things down and going, okay, I know that we're going to have to look back at this tip sheet with all of these resources that you all are sharing because I don't know if I got them all. Um, But, I'm really curious, as I'm sure many of our listeners might be, you know, we, we talk a lot about how the arts educators, um, really are kind of on an island when they're, when they're teaching or, or on their campuses. Um, have, have you all, either one of you, and we're going to probably start with Becky, but have you collaborated with other professionals, especially in um, the special education professionals in in order to assess or address a, a student, a particular student's needs um, or or requirements or accommodations. And, you know, because there might be some teachers out there listening that are like, OK, I, I have this one student and I'm not sure how to go about addressing them and their requirements or their accommodations. So Becky, if you could kind of share with that, if you have, um, I'm sure some of our listeners would really love to hear um, responses.
2: Absolutely. Um, So I talk uh, with our child support team, our child study team, rather uh, throughout the year. Um, These are the individuals that uh, write the IEPs and really get to know um, students that have IEPs. Um, I invite people into my classroom all the time to say like, come watch a class like I for if I need feedback um, or help if I feel like I'm not addressing the needs of a student, I invite um, the case manager in Um, or if I'm like, hey, you need to come see what's happening in here. The student is really shining like come watch. Um, I love when people are in my classroom. Um, but actually, so COVID was actually a really big turning point in my relationship with the child study team at my school. Um, so in that first year back from COVID, um, we know about the learning loss. We've heard about, you know, we've seen it, we've experienced it. Um, so we had a lot more students in um ICR in-class resource or out-of-class resource classes where they have a special education teacher. Um, And so for some instances, I may have been one of the only gen ed teachers students had in the day. Um, So I got invited to IEP meetings for the first time as the general education uh, teacher. And um, this is where we learned that I see a very different side of students in my class express a sharing uh, successes or, or just what I see, how students respond to prompts and um, communicate their ideas through movement and then verbally respond or through writing to, ex- to explain what their movements meant was kind of like this aha moment for both of us where they were like, hmm, let's keep putting, um, students in dance, because it is reinforcing what they are learning in English or in science or in like any of their other classes. So um, that has been a really great relationship for advocacy for my program. This uh, students with the IEPs also, you know, their confidence builds in dance when they are successful, Um, they're given a chance to express themselves in a way that um, they are working to their strengths. And again, we're celebrating everyone's strengths, and it's really like a really special uh, moment. Um, that has also opened the door where counselors, admin, psychologists, etc., come talk to me and say, "Hey, we have this student. Do you think dance would be a right, the right fit?" Rather than saying, "Oh, that's not a dancer." So that conversation mindset is starting to shift. Um, and i you know i never turn anyone away because the arts any the arts are just for everyone we can all exist in them there's a place for everyone i firmly believe that um and the really exciting moments for me are when after a show when a parent can come up to me and um say like actually this was a, a moment that did happen i had a, a student who went to an out-of-district school but participated in our after-school program um and her mom came up to me after a show and was like I couldn't even find her on stage and I was like oh no (laughs) that was not and she's like she she looked like everyone else she was doing everything that everyone else was doing and we've never like that was such a special moment for all of us um so again like Sean was saying too it's it's fitting our lessons to our students and not fitting our students to the lessons our job as teachers is to figure out how we teach our content and present it in a way that our students can receive it and be successful in producing whatever they need to produce rather than fitting them into a box and asking everyone to produce the same thing in the same way Um, and that just comes from getting to know your students and getting and talking having conversations with parents with the other teachers, learning their strengths, learning what they need to work on, so that nothing exists in a vacuum and we are really creating a support system for students holistically.
0: Yeah. um sean kind of the i mean not kind of the same question to you how do you collaborate with special special education professionals um and support staff in order to really address requirements and uh for accommodations yeah.
3: uh well i'm certified in both so i would say that um yeah I live in kind of both of the world so i <laughs> i um yeah i agree with everything becky is saying i I would put it in the context of this uh, being around the block a few times i've been in environments where they're the culture of the district or the culture or the mindset of the school or the administration is what becky is talking about like they people want to be part of a collaborative environment to approaching Individual education plan for students. Forget about the compliance. They're just focusing on every student as individual. How can we make these students successful, whether they have an IEP or not? because um, there's a lot of kids that have struggles, that are undiagnosed, um, have different things with that. Then there's the flip side, where you're working in an environment where it's all about compliance. And the reality is, as an art teacher, when you're all working about compliance, you might be brought in there because they just need a general ed teacher to be there, but they don't they don't really care because they're not going to put ICT, for the most part, into an arts class. The ICT is going to be in these core subjects, and they're looking at testing, they're looking at all of these things of college readiness. So I'm just putting out there that there's a schism between approaches versus what we want to value as college and career readiness based on leadership or district leadership, school leadership, and so forth with that. So putting that in the context, I would say if you're working in an environment where they're very compliance driven, even though you're an art teacher, understand, learn a little bit about the IEP process and the rights of the students. You have a right as an art teacher to be Whether you're invited or not, you have a right to be at every IEP meeting. So show up, advocate for the kid. You're going to see some people that are, I don't want to say the word, but they're going to S their pants uh, (laughs) when you show up because like literally they've already written the narrative Mm -hmm. and you're coming in and saying something that's not part of the ducks in the order about this kid. Mm -hmm. Now I say that because you don't want to get yourself in I've I've got don't be like me don't get yourself in trouble you but you do you can advocate in a very positive way uh in those environments by understanding your rights to be part of that process and like Becky was saying there's there's so many opportunities for inter-collaboration and in some and some districts will allow that they, I'm a big integrated arts person versus arts being separated so you can find ways for the arts to be included. And maybe the general ed teacher come to the arts teacher, not the special ed teacher and say, how can I incorporate arts into my class to make more accessibility? And wouldn't that be nice if we could do that? Because I think the arts teachers know ways to reframe Hamlet, for example, in an English class to make it more accessible to kids.
1: We are coming to the end of this conversation and we want to ask two last questions, one for me, and then also one for Matt. I'm learning from our previous CAN teacher leaders that they have a mentor or teacher that they would credit with impacting their choice to become an art educator. And so I'm wondering if Becky, Sean, Would each of you share who your person is with us? What their name is, you know, they're not a mystery person. Um, And did they impact your point of view about inclusivity? Sean, who was your person? Ooh,
3: that's a loaded question. Um,
1: (laughs) I saw your face too, I'm like, uh (laughs) uh-oh.
3: Yeah. Because I didn't, yeah, twenty years ago I wasn't going to be a high school teacher. That wasn't my path. Um, I wanted to be in community college. That was my whole dream. Everything I did to go to graduate school and everything else was to be in the college level. Um, And then I became in the in the high school level. I think uh during my journey as an educator, there's been a, quite a few people that have um impacted me because I was told a hey, I would never go to i could never graduate college I could never go to grad school. I'm not smart enough to do that um, uh it was, and so th- those people, uh, including Kathy Irwin, um Denise Boyd, my dissertation advisor, Dr. Reed uh, for MFA, there was always an element that th- there was a, I don't want to sound weird about this because I know how you have to keep boundaries when you're in K through 12. But I feel like in my life, there's, some of those boundaries have been broken down. Barriers have been broken down when pe- when my relationships with my advisors have been a little bit more than just the classroom and uh, that type of mentoring. And I know that's a challenge when we're in K through twelve, but I do really believe that we need to find those spaces just to be there when people are in their journey. And all those people, they I mean. Arthur Lessack told me one time. I I this is my story for this. All right. So the first year I went to a Lessack intensive, I was with people in there that were very famous actors doing this stuff, and I never did Shakespeare, and I was doing Shakespeare ex- explorations, and I thought, oh my God, I am on, I'm doing this stuff with this famous person, and I feel very privileged. And a couple of years later, I asked Arthur about it, and he goes. Oh no! We all decided that that first year it was just therapy for you. You didn't actually learn how to teach yourself until year two. I was like, oh, which is, would sound bad, except he didn't tell me that till later on, and I understand. But I understand that now because sometimes what we're going through, youth is going through, and being part of a mentor and being an adult is understanding that we're going through different journeys in our life and being there for that person. Uh, is to help them get to that next bridge, even if they don't know what you are doing, you're just sharing it because you know somewhere else they'll come back that energy to them. Again, I'll use the word mo. That's the prim- premise of nomo. All right, that's what I got.
1: Every every episode, I wind up crying, <laughs> and I was almost through this episode without crying until you said that. Becky, are you going to keep me crying? (laughs) Who was your person?
2: Yeah, so this is a pretty easy one. This is uh, Dr. Barbara Bashaw. When I was at Rutgers, she was the director of dance education um, and my advisor, and she is currently at Teachers College of Columbia serving as the executive director of the Arnhold Institute for Dance Education Research Policy and Leadership, which is the first. EDD for dance education, Um, and, you know, she is the one that introduced me to this world of dance education beyond studio life, which nothing against studio life. It is a valid form of dance education, but there is a lot beyond that, Um, and that's when my mindset started to shift about what dance is um, and really what education is. Cause they go hand in hand. Um, she's really big on advocacy and instilled that in all of us. And I try and instill that into my students too, not just for dance, but for themselves, how to self-advocate and speak up for themselves. Um, and, you know, just that dance exists everywhere. Dance is for everyone and echo- echoing what um, Sean was saying, dance is academia. And you know that's the same for theater, music, visual arts, like we are academia, we are core content, it's national core art standards, Um, the arts are not electives, they are necessities. Um, But that comes from education and part of our role here is educating not just our students but our school communities and our larger communities about what art education is and that it is more than just what you see on stage. So much more happens to get to that point of performing. Um, there are, you know, so much exists outside of performing. And, um, you know, there are dates, some days I don't even feel like I'm teaching dancing class, like we're just teaching empathy and teaching like how to be a person. and. Um, it's just so much more, and it's all embedded in there um, naturally. Um, but the one class, the one thing that Barbara said that always stuck, there are many things, but the one thing that really stuck with me, and it was just a, a, a normal class one day, but she talked about chaotic organization. Um, and I was like, huh, um, but it has always, it just has always stuck because I am someone who really likes things very precise in how they are. Um, And that is not really, that doesn't lend itself well to creativity. Um, So starting, you know, she helped me start to find the freedom to let go and to trust my students, that I am setting them up for success and to trust their process, even if it doesn't look like mine and to trust that, you know, um, that we have created the environment and, um, for them to do well and um, instill the the right ideas so that they will make the the best choice for them. Um, And that is always stuck with me as I try to let my classroom be a chaotically organized place for them to explore and have a voice um, and really start to figure out who they are and what they want to say. It's not about what I think and what I want to say. It's about helping them find their own voice. Um, and I'm really thankful, again, that my I decided to go that way for my journey and here I am now.
0: Oh my goodness. Um, such wisdom in both of those responses. Thank you to, to both of you. Um, so we do have a tradition on K-12 Art Chat Podcast. Um, of asking a final question. But instead of our traditional question that we usually ask, we're going to kind of change it up a little bit. And so what is one professional goal that you have for this school year? Um, And kind of how do you maybe plan on achieving it? And, you know, if you could share it with our listeners, your, your professional goal for the school year. So, um becky we're kind of putting you on the spot here um what how would you answer this question and then we'll go to sean
2: my goal for this year is to acknowledge the little victories Mm -hmm. which is not my strength (laughs) um i like to just like jump to the next thing about like okay but this needs to happen next so my goal is to like to be more present and to acknowledge the little victories um I'm in, like I said before, I'm in my eighth year. um, And I think that I'm feeling that this is the time where I could fall into a rut. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a lot of things made from past years, and it could be very easy to just redo that. um, But also recognizing that that is the easy way out. And (laughs) that approach probably will not meet my students in my class currently, right? That's fitting my students uh-huh. to my my work or my curriculum or my assignments versus adapting the assignments to the students. So um, throughout, like within that idea of accepting the little victories, like sticking with, um, find, staying with that idea of like the creativity and room to explore and um, letting go to, whatever it was in the past. Like, even if this is how we did it last year, like if my students are interested in a new performance opportunity or trying a totally different way to approach this, um, you know, the second marking period, like listening to them, hearing them out and working with them to keep that kind of growth and everything we talked about today, like very much um, alive in my, my space.
0: I you know I'm just to kind of chime in here in here in Texas we've been going for quite a while so even 2 weeks or 9 weeks or whatever however long and no matter how many years you've been teaching reflecting on where you are and having a goal is is really important so Sean what what is your professional goal for this this school year
3: Yeah professional goals are always important um for me uh just to where i'm at in my in my life um and, you know 22 years into this system i um i'm learning not to try to control the narrative as much as kind of work uh, with the narrative that is there and what uh, kind of is being offered to me so um i i have goals uh you know I, very appreciative of the opportunity to work with Maria and the can in here in New York, and I'm giving more leadership opportunities to work um, this year with Manhattan facilitators so I'm very happy about that opportunity. Because um, I think I'm in a place where I'm kind of transitioning more, a little bit more into an administration and I'm um, accepting of that and I'm hoping that as an uh, that type of leadership. I'm more of a servant in terms of leadership and supporting other people versus, uh, you know, trying to put in my own uh, narrative. Um, But I always, uh, I always have goals about, you know, finding spaces where the unvoiced can come together and finding partnerships that don't really exist for that. So I always have goals and hopes to find uh, those places um, uh, right now for my goal so my goals are bringing public and private um, school you know we have different levels of Manhattan of those environments and bringing that together so there's accessibility I think the Harlem School of Arts program which is after school and Saturday program does a very good job about that but um, I think there's just a re- really a, a You know, continuing to bring kids and get them into the arts and finding a love around that and going back. Those are those are my goals. Being part of the part of that supporting these efforts that are there.
1: I have to say that I feel like from top to bottom of this conversation, it almost followed that praxis spiral, to be honest. Like kept looping back over and over and over again, but things that I made note of, and I'm going to continue to noodle on after we end the recording. Sean, at the top of the hour, I heard you say theater kept me alive. And then I heard you, Becky, say something around this concept of spaces that are safe and healing yet how it manifests looks different every single day. And I also heard this notion of designing tasks for listening and laughter that support this element of curious excitement. But the word that I the word as well as the the concept and then what it poked at in my heart both of you are committed to belonging. And I, I I just have to say thank you. I could literally listen to both of you for another 10 hours. And probably many of the listeners feel the same way too, because I'm recognizing that it's the thing that you're both, and also the field of arts education at large, are geniuses at. If there's nothing else that comes from this conversation, I hope that everyone who listens feels a degree of resonance, but affirmation as well. Um, I, I think in some of the things that you were saying, you articulated when you didn't feel like you belonged as a learner, as well as going through your own educational path, but then stumbling on the mentors. Who was it who said mentors are bridges? Was it Sean, I think? And I'm like, that, that like that's what made them great. And that's what also put you firmly on your path. That's what got you through your degree program so that you can be an educator and you've got the 20 plus years behind you. So I just felt like all kinds of fueled and filled up by this conversation. And I really do. I, yeah, you, you weren't just preaching to the choir. You were preaching to the hype choir. Like I want to be your hype choir from now on. So I'm thanking you for that. I needed this conversation more than I will admit on this this recording. Um, Thank you, Matt, for co-hosting the conversation. Yeah, obviously. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Sean, for being honest uh, and generous. Not just honest, but generous about your experiences, your learnings, your growth, and your expertise and sharing of resources that's all that I got to say for this, (laughs) this episode. I'm like, I'm surprised I only cried once.
0: I am too. Um, (laughs) but I just want to kind of echo the response. So thank you, Becky. Thank you, Sean, for coming on here, taking the time to, to be able to share your, your knowledge and your, your passion for what you, for what you all do. So thank you. Oh my goodness. That was amazing. And there was Mm -hmm. so much wisdom dropped on there. So
1: agreed. I do. It was just what you said. It was amazing. And, um, I feel like it was a very generous conversation to be honest. Yeah, Yeah,
0: it was. And there was a lot of real conversation in there too. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a lot of things mentioned that I'm hoping our um, our guests will um, put that information on the uh, the Can tip sheet, and um, and also when they look for that, they can be able to find. If they can't look for the Can tip sheet, they'll also be able to look uh, in DavisArt.com for their free resources. Um, underneath the free resources, you'll find. Every single one of K12R Chat, the podcasts, along with each guest's um, resource page. So it's always a great place to look. So um, if you are, if for our listeners, if you are listening uh, for the first time or you are listening because you've listened to it many times, um, share with us, well, first off, like it, subscribe to it if you like it and share it with other people. And if you are really interested in a particular topic or you want us to talk to somebody um, in specific ideas, um, send us an email or send us a message through social media. We're on all the social media platforms, um, except for TikTok. We're not really into that, but whatever um
1: you never know you never
0: know no I know um I kind of run that so um but no we're not we're not we're not on that one but if you want to send us an email our email is thecreativitydept at gmail.com and um yeah we're we're thankful to CAN we're thankful to NAEA thankful to Davis uh for doing all the wonderful things that they do and um We hope that you all have a creative week.